Hello again out there, podcast world. Chad Belding with another episode of This Life Ain't For Everybody. Today, we come at you from the great state of Kansas. I believe it's what uh, Jason Aldean sang about as a flyover state, one of those states if you're flying across the United States, the continental United States, you know, you're going to the East Coast, the West Coast, or one of those cool states or something, you fly over states like Kansas. But to me, Kansas is a cool, cool state when it comes to the outdoors and everything that has to offer as far as big-time whitetail turkeys and predator hunting and fishing opportunities, the Arkansas River fly fishing opportunities. There's um, just so much to chase here, and the reason that we come here, there's a lot of great bird hunting, including quail and pheasant, and like I said, turkey with the Rio Grande and some, uh, some hybrid turkeys. But the main reason I come here and my guest today comes to the state of Kansas is mallard duck hunting and Canada goose hunting. And joining me today is a friend that I met in Saskatchewan, Canada at Grant Kuyper's Lodge last October of 2017. We were both up there enjoying the the spectacle of what Grant Kuyper's and his crew at Buck Paradise Outfitters allow us to enjoy. And uh, this man came up to me and we started a conversation. And lo and behold, a year later, we are in the blind together in Kansas, chasing lesser Canada's, some greater Canada's, and of course, the Mallard Duck. I'm talking about John LaMonica, who hails from Texas and California, now resides in Montana and has hunted pretty much all over the world. We're going to get into that today. Today's episode of This Life Ain't For Everybody is brought to you by our friends at Apex Tool Group, the leader in industrial fastening tools. Um, Thank you so much, Mary and Bill and everybody that uh, supports us at Apex. If you guys want strong tools that are going to be there for you when you're out on the road traveling like we do on a daily basis, I don't care if it's boats, motors, trailers, your decoy trailer, your boat trailer, your UTV trailer, your four-wheel drives, your quads, your UTVs, anything that you use out in the field, these these drill sets are awesome and they're tough and they're reliable. Apex Tool Group, thank you again so much. We do not hunt without them. They're always in our trailers. As well as our friends, today's episode is brought by Dick CPEC Tires. They've entrusted us for the last eight years. We run the roads of America, both the pavement and the dirt roads, the back roads, everywhere that we chase ducks and geese here at the Foul Life and Banded. We use Dick CPEC Tires and Wheels. They're reliable. They're part of the Mickey Thompson racing family of tires, and uh, we couldn't be more fired up for some of the products that they're getting ready to launch in 2019. And... Um, they're, they're just an awesome, awesome brand. So please support the brands that support us here at This Life Ain't For Everybody in the Foul Life and Banded. Dick Peck Tires and Apex, they're responsible for today's episode. Mr. John LaMonico, how are you, sir? Chad, I'm just fine. Happy to be here. And uh, is this your first time chasing ducks and geese in Canada? Uh, no, sir. Or, excuse me, Kansas? No, sir. I've, uh, I've been here several times uh, within probably a 150-mile radius of this area, hunting primarily waterfowl, some pheasant hunting, but the big emphasis uh, has been on waterfowl for Kansas. Did it ever surprise you that Kansas was a waterfowling um, quote-unquote destination? Because do you agree with me with what I started with, that it's primarily known for big white-tailed deer and maybe some turkey hunting? That's correct. You know, I kind of describe it as as a sleeper. It's just a sleeper. All of a sudden, you know, and following the migrations and hunting them from Alaska to Mexico, somebody said, well, gee, have you ever uh, uh, tried uh, uh, Kansas? You know, we got a lot of grain crops. And 
I started investigating it and found out that I was bypassing some pretty good hunting. So I've been here maybe seven or eight times. And do you mainly concentrate on water in Kansas, or do you like to chase them in the dry fields as well? Well, you know, I like to go where the wild goose goes, but uh, my preference is frankly over water because you get to see a good dog working, and uh, I like the way the uh, birds uh, work in water, maybe a little more than uh, shooting out of uh, the open fields. So you are pretty much telling me that you enjoy waterfowl hunting on the water part of it, over water, the 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 approach of boat rides or stomping into a muddy marsh, waders on, dog next to you with a vest on, jerk cords, um, decoy, floating decoys, weighted kill decoys. You know, that whole approach of water is just, to me, it's, um, it's, 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 a, it's a lot of times it's a good relief, you know, because we do start early in Canada and a lot of that could be pea fields and you move down to the Dakotas and some of that could be corn fields. And even where you come from now in Montana, there's a lot of corn and ethanol over there. So I've had some really good mallard hunts and Canada goose hunts and dry corn there. But when you get a chance to get on the water, whether it's a river, an oxbow, um, the flooded timber of Arkansas or down off the coast of Katy or somewhere, it's just, there's something about hunting water. Don't you agree? Oh, ab- absolutely. Uh, I think I'd sum it up by saying it gives you two or three extra dimensions. Uh, when you're uh, standing uh, in the water, if you're in your waders, be it behind a tree or in a patch of willows or tules, you can generate uh, a little action in the water by uh, manipulating the boots. Uh, I like uh, the sound of the early ducks hitting the water as opposed to the fields and uh, I think it's uh, really a, a more scenic atmosphere. And for me, it's it adds two or three extra dimensions. Dog work in the water is, I think, prettier than dog work in the field. I wouldn't, I would not argue that one bit. What, as far as your experience here with us the last couple of days, Mitch and these guys, I mean, they're a hardworking crew, aren't they? Oh, absolutely. You know, uh, uh, there was never a day when we had a shortage of geese, and that's what we were really kind of concentrating on, and we saw a barrel full of geese. Uh, they were uh, pretty well bunched up, but, you know, as we like to say in waterfowl and hunting, no two days are ever the same. And uh, the difference between having a highly successful or a full bag and still having a good time is just the birds coming another 20 or 30 yards in front of you, and it would be all over in 30 minutes. So we've had to work for what we have, but as far as our support crew, uh, gosh, I think they were putting out 12, 14 dozen, close to 500 assorted decoys, and uh, they re- really looking nice. Had a little mix of specs once in a while a snow here or there to add realism to the spread but uh, uh, we've had a first class hunt we would have liked to have had a little more shooting but if we had good shooting all the time uh, we'd be pretty spoiled we're spoiled enough yeah we get to our last days tomorrow and we're hunting a place where uh, mitch has taken me before that's it's been a really special place as far as, you know, a water hole, a um, lot of dark geese, a lot of mallard ducks. So tomorrow we could go out with a bang today. We were like right on the verge today where, where I don't know if it was the sky. We had that, you know, that gray, dark, gloomy sky again, which is my least favorite to hunt in waterfowl. I'd rather obviously have 
My personal favorite is blue skies with cold and a wind with sunshine. And my second favorite, if we are going to have clouds, I'd rather have it be, you know, a lower ceiling where it's spitting and and you get a little bit of hell or some really cold moisture with snow or something that's going to give you that shot. But when they're up there tall under that dark, gloomy sky, there's just no hide. There's no shadows. There's no brightness. There's no color. Your decoys don't pop. They don't stand out. The chances of them picking you out are just their odds are increased wholeheartedly. So, you know, you just you can never um, predict the weather. You can, if you have a very, um, if you're blessed and you can just get on a plane real quick and somebody calls you and says, hey, the next three days look good, the ducks are here, it's sunny. You know, some people can do that, but there's also other people that plan these trips out well in advance and they take time off of work and they rely on an outfitting company and group like Mitch Yoder has here at Kansas Hunts and he has the support of Tyler and Matt and these guys have great access. They have great personal relationships with landowners and farmers. Matt Bohannon farms and tills a lot of the land himself with his daddy. Um, So as far as being in the spot, I've had hunts here where they're over in nine minutes. And then you sit there and go, well, what are we going to do for the rest of the day? Because the geese come in so plentiful. But you know what I'm saying? It's like we were right on the edge today. Yesterday, we were right on the verge. It's like, we're going to get them. It's going to be a sunny day over this water hole. And then it warmed up. And then they just kind of just got out on the grass and they just stuck there all day. So it's one of those deals where people see what we do or they see the pictures that people put on the social media and they automatically use that assumption or assume that, man, they're just killing them every day and they're just so lucky to be there. But that's not the case anywhere with waterfowl. There's really no such, even if you're considered a quote unquote professional hunter, you're still faced with the same ins and outs of in the ups and downs every day, right? Of like, we're right on the verge and tomorrow can change everything and wrap the last four days into this one final, get the heck out of Kansas chat and John hunt, right? Well, you know, I said earlier, no two days are alike. And that certainly holds true, uh, more true than ever uh, in a waterfowl. They're more susceptible to climatic changes. And I know a lot of people uh, say when you get a, dark, cold, wintry days, and boy, this would be a great day to be duck hunting, huh? And really, that's, that isn't the way it works. Uh, when you get a good, sunny, bright day, and as you say, uh, the birds really come alive, uh, they're looking for their little friends. Uh, uh, that's the time when they really work beautifully in the sun. Now, I uh, have known some situations, and I'm sure you have with your experiences, where if it's really bitterly cold, and the birds are getting ready to pull out, they're looking for feed. And when it gets so cold, they have to eat. In order to stay alive, they've got to do it. And I think the biologists refer to it as hyper, uh, bird, no, not, uh, uh, what's the word I'm searching for uh, when they just have to eat? Uh, oh gosh, I'll, I'll figure it out here in a minute. But uh, they, uh, I've got to take on energy to stay alive and to stay warm. And when they sit there, my hyperphagia is the word, hyperphagia. They have to eat frequently to keep up their body heat. And that's when they come in like kamikazes. We're going down to get that scrap corn or whatever's left in the field. And uh, that's one time when the combination is just perfect for, for bad weather, but my preference would be a nice, sunny, clear day. Your call sounds better on a clear day. The wind's not pushing it away. And, you know, it's all fun, but some of it's 
little more fun than others. Yeah, I agree. And I think that that's what draws us to waterfowl hunting is that there's so many different pieces of that puzzle that, that need to work out for it to be perfect. But when it's not perfect and you only have th- three out of the 10 pieces, you can still be memorable. And if you have seven out of the 10 pieces, then you're just like, man, we're right on the verge of it. We know it's getting ready to happen. And you just got to keep working hard and scouting hard and, and, and being, you know, pretty clever with your approach. And, and, in when we get out of the, when we get out of the, in the field with these guys here at Kansas hunts, I mean, their, their decoy spreads are realistic. They look like, you know, lesser Canada geese in a certain part of a field. Their hides are immaculate. We're hidden. And I, like I said, is that waterfowl hunting is so tricky to the point to where, you can never assume anything like, oh man, we smoked them with Mitch last year, four days in a row. And you come and, and you struggle one day and you're just like, man, something's wrong. And you know, we got to change something. And these guys just stick to their guns. They keep working hard and they keep looking like geese, looking like ducks, sounding like geese, sound like ducks, movement, motion, everything from A to Z, they have it covered. So that's, that's really what I like to see here is that they never really get their panties in a wad. They don't get too worked up at all. And they just stay the course. And the next thing you know it takes two or three good goes with these little lessers and you're done with the six bird limit per man each day and you know it could happen in a heartbeat just like yesterday we're sitting there and those big wads finish right on top of us we shot twice and all of a sudden we're over 20 birds just that quick you know it doesn't take too many rallies with the kind of birds they have here and you know our setup was really just absolutely first class i agree with uh, your comments about the decoys and the panel blinds, uh, they did a lot of work to make certain that we were really properly camouflaged. You know, they did it right, and they'd stand back and look at it like they're doing a painting. It's, no, we got not enough green in this corner, dress it up, and all of that with a good attitude makes for a good hunt. And, you know, just to digress for a moment, uh, people often ask me, particularly when they're visiting, looking at books or trophy rooms or something like that. They say, well, don't you ever have a a bad hunt? And I thought for a minute and I said, well, no, not really. I said, uh, uh, I've had many unsuccessful hunts, but uh, you can always find something good, something to learn from another guide, another outfitter, another technique uh, it might be about calling. It might be about placement. It might be about blind configurations, distance to the decoys. But you can still learn an awful lot. I've been at it for a long time, and every hunt I go on, I really try to learn something because things have changed in waterfowling, just like everything else in life. A lot of changes. Yeah, and I want to get back to that point that you just made about learning something and being a sponge, and and I try to apply that, and I think a lot of that has to do with maybe my, you know, my athletics growing up and my competitiveness and trying to learn something every time. I think a lot of coaches, if they're doing their job, teach you that, that trait and how to be coachable and teachable and learning something all the time. And waterfowl, if you pay attention, there's no better teacher than Mother Nature and the birds. So, um, but you also you also have told me things in the past of you know, people will come up to you and say, man, John, you've been hunting for a long time. And you, you, you hunted when it was the glory days, the good old days. And I'm sure you've heard that term a lot, the good old days. And you always tell me, Chad, 
these are the good old days with the decoys and the access and the way that we can travel today and the guns. And I mean, talk to me a little bit about, you know, when people think that it was way better back in the forties and fifties or sixties when the ducks were so much more plentiful, but you consider these the good days, the good old days, right? Absolutely. We have so much more going for us as uh, hunters. You know, there's been waterfowl studies, habitat management, better guns, better ammo, better cameras, better transportation, ATVs. You know, they've made it easier for us. And although we have a much greater population and the hunting habitat has been reduced by a noticeable degree, I remember when as kids uh, we could just get in the family car and drive seven or eight miles out of town and go down the river bottom or we'd hunt the mouth of the river or we jump some agricultural ponds and shoot ducks. Well, today, uh, private land ownership, access, private clubs puts a lot of competition on the hunter. You have to really do your homework. You can't go out. Let's let's go on a hunt Saturday morning. I'll meet you at the cafe at 5 a.m. Well, you just can't do it that way. You've got to have a plan, make a plan, and work it. So that's the negative about what has happened today. It's more restrictive, but in terms of being equipped to be successful in the field and to hunt ducks and geese, waterfowl the way you like it, uh, these are the best days. They're really, really good. And I uh, can't help but recall that when I first started out uh, and I graduated from a 410 single-shot topper uh, to a 20-gauge and then a 16-gauge Winchester Model 12 pump, which was the gun. And in high school, I I worked in a sporting goods shop, naturally in a gun department. I wasn't too bad at it for a 15-year-old kid. And the best gun you could buy, a waterfowler's delight, there were two of them, but the prime one was a Winchester Model 12 ventilated rib, extended beaver tail forearm, and uh, that was really, they also made that in a three-inch duck gun. And that, I remember that and the Browning, what we call the A5, we called it the humpback in those days, uh, uh, that would sell for $177 on the rack. And it was a lot of fun to see those guns. And I still have some of those in my uh, firearm collection. And once in a while, I... I pick some of them up. I won't mention them by names. And I say, gosh, this is really a club, you know. And now I pick up a a Benelli or I pick up a Beretta and I say, wow, doesn't this fit? You know, I throw it to my shoulder and I've got a perfect alignment, cheekbone, no canting. And I say to myself, gosh, my old guns were were really something. And uh, uh, I remember graduating from those those guns. I had an Ithaca Model 37 Featherlight bottom ejection, and I uh, I liked that gun a great deal because it was very light, and it frankly felt it had the feel and the weight distribution of the uh, Benelli today, and that's that's one of my real favorites. And uh, I'm not saying that uh, because of your relationship with the Benelli people, but I'm proud to say that uh, when the very first Benelli started to come out, uh, a gunsmith in Dallas, Texas told us he wanted us to take a look at them. And 
went down the gun shop and uh, we immediately, another good friend uh, and myself immediately got a hold of two and they were uh, just a, a Benelli in the walnut stock, just like a regular firearm that you'd buy. And then I saw the evolution from the walnut stock to the synthetic black stock and then the camo stock and then the uh, uh, Benelli two, and now the uh, SB3 Super Benelli Blackhawk. And uh, uh, they've been uh, real favorites, and I'm proud to say that I've got a pretty nice uh, gun case full of them, and uh, my kids love them. I have two boys and a wife that like to shoot. The Super Not Black Eagles, is you, you, you're referring to the, the new SB3, and it's... Uh Man, I can't even explain like how the egonomics of it, right? Or just like the the way it feels in your hand, the weight of it, the weight distribution of it. And and I tell George and these guys at Benelli all the time is like, you're doing what? You're coming out with another waterfowl gun. Well, how in the heck are you going to improve on the Super Black Eagle Two or the M Two? And they're like, um, you know, that's about that's what it means to be a product company and that's driven with performance and reliability like Benelli is. And they come out with this gun, and I'm like like six and a half ounces lighter than the two, sleeker in your hand like a golf club or a baseball bat almost. Um, the recoil is lessened even with the weight lessened like that. And then it's got, you know, everything from the larger trigger compartment and the larger, all of the different, you know, the benefits that come with that gun, including like the bigger trigger compartment or the, the, the lever to open your action or the button to close your actions all bigger. So you can grab it a lot easier with guns. And, and I think that, you know, the main thing that I love about the change in the gun is how the forearm feels in your hand. So, you know, they, 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 we, they are a big partner of ours and they are our title sponsor of the foul life. And we do a lot of different projects with them, but I, I don't, I don't think that anything, you know, I know that there's other gun brands out there and I know that you can have success in the field with them, but day in and day out of hunting with a Benelli and these new Super Black Eagle 3s and a lot of times I shoot the M220 gauge like down in the flooded timber or on a river duck hunt, they just work. They're dependable and they just they go bang 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 three times and that's what you want and they just make me feel like I'm going to be successful. And that that's the, I I know exactly where you're going with that. They people can say well they pay you to say that. Well, maybe they do, but the the I I'm being truthful when I say it. There's nothing like shooting one of them when you're hunting ducks and geese day in and day out. Well, I I couldn't agree with you more uh and I'm certainly not paid, nor do I have any obligation uh, uh, to say what I do, except that uh, I'm a very candid person. People ask me a lot of things about uh, hunting and my, my humble experiences with them. And uh, the Benelli just sold me, and I've, I've picked them all up. And all I can say is when I pick up a Benelli, I feel like I have on a pair of driving gloves. They fit firm and tight and natural as opposed to maybe picking something up with a pair of canvas gardening gloves. That's, that's the analogy. That's a great analogy. Boy, it fits me to a T. When I pick it up, it's there. Yep. It's there, and I. it's nice to have that. I like the lesser weight and the improvements that they made, and I know a lot of them, uh, uh, you know, there's always minor technical and mechanical issues that need to be improved. Uh, you know, the bolt closing and uh, uh, something might wear a little more on some guns. And, uh, you know, guys like uh, you and myself, not that I'm in professional league, but we put a lot of rounds through those guns. And uh, 
uh, gosh, I've uh, used the Benelli in South America and several countries. And at the end of the hunt, you know, I realized, boy, I put some cartridges through this thing and uh, they they take it real well. It's not a light gun the way it's designed. Uh, when you use even a heavy duck load or a goose load, you don't get that feeling like there's so much torque it's going to fly out of your hand. Nice, nice weapon, and uh, I hope to continue to use that as as my uh, real weapon of choice for waterfowl. I would think that one of the things that have changed a lot over the years of your hunting career would be the ammunition. Um, it seems to me that with the advancements in engineering and technology and um, a lot of the ammunitions that are available on the shelf today, it, it's another product that's been improved. I mean, when, you know, a lot of your hunting career was with lead and after that, the mandate came down that you can no longer chase migratory waterfowl in America with lead. Um, you know, then we went through the steel shot phase and the bismuth and the tungsten and, and some of that's still around. And there's the ammo today, the technology, and it gives you a lot better penetration, a lot better results, patterning all of it that goes into density, anything you talk about when it comes to ammunition. But as far as compared to the steel shot, right, when that mandate came down, the ammo today is even better. But how does it compare over your lifetime? Um, Would you rather be shooting lead? Let's take away all of the health, you know, risks or lead poisoning and everything that goes into the reason they did it. Are you satisfied with the ammo in today's duck hunting world, goose hunting world, or would you rather still stick with just regular shells, you know, regular lead, high, high base or low base lead shells? Or what, what, what's your feelings on the, the evolution of ammunition? Well, today we have a staggering selection of ammo. Uh, you can go out and get uh, any amount of uh, payload that you want. You want an ounce and an eighth, an ounce and a quarter, an ounce and three eighths, an ounce and a half. It's all available. You want 1,250, 13, 1,400 feet per second, or do you want 1,550? And I think there's some loads out there that are pushing 1,700. Not that I'm an advocate of any of those, but I, I think to answer your question very directly, ammo selections today are better than they ever were. Uh, I did grow up in the lead years, and I remember well, if you had a two and three quarter ounce and a quarter uh, high base sixes to start the season and then go down to fours later on, that was a pretty deadly load, but without specifically mentioning brands and things like that, uh, uh, I can just tell you that you can find any kind of ammo you want. And I suggest to anyone that when they make a decision to try something, spend that extra two hours patterning it and you might surprise yourself at what you see. Yeah. I did it recently and uh, I said, gosh, that's pretty staggering. I didn't think I could get away with that at 45 yards, but uh, it's a heck of a nice uh, thing to have that selection available to you. And with the ammo we've been shooting here the last few days, I've given you the the federal premium black cloud, which is their you know their their mainstay. Is so they got the blue box, and then they have the black cloud, which has been around ten or eleven years now, and they've reinvented it with the flex wad and shooting it out of ported choke tubes now. 
And then this year they introduced the federal Black Cloud TSS, the tungsten super steel, which is amazing load. And I'd let you be slinging a few of those lately. That stuff's like cigarettes in prison. I mean, how awesome it is. And, but you could really, I mean, that the Black Cloud is a special ammunition, in my opinion. Again, people are like, well, they pay you. But, man, just that's what I'm saying is that I'm not sitting here saying that it's the end all. But I see the look on your face and how giddy you are right oh, now because yeah. we know that Federal is absolutely raising the bar. Every every time I shoot Black Cloud, I'm just like, why would you ever try to better this? And then they come out with TSS, and I'm like, oh, that's why. You know, and it's like, a, you know, the nine shot mixed in there. It's a pretty lethal load. Well, I, you know, you exposed me to that. And uh, uh, I know that uh, there's limited availability in some areas. And uh, I told you that I, I was going to be perfectly happy with our regular uh, Black Cloud 3-inch loads, 1450, and uh, that's been a devastating load, and uh, twos, and I shot a lot of Black Cloud with triple Bs on pass shooting for snow geese and big Canadas up north, and uh, uh, that's a wonderful ammunition to use. It It's clean, and... Uh, Again, it's a beautiful selection when you can get a nice uh, uh, selection of shot and uh, feet per second. And I was uh, really curious, as I expressed to you, about uh, what the number nine shot was going to be uh, doing when it's loaded in with the bigger conventional size shot. And uh, uh, I remember seeing on TV an explanation from one of the a design engineers talking about uh, how lethal the number nine shot uh, can be when it's uh, uh, fired with good velocity. And uh, uh, I wanted to uh, really, if time permitted, uh, to pick a couple of birds. And I, I really wanted to see the wound channels on that. Uh, but uh, I do know that uh, it adds something to the density of your pattern because when we had some bunches in, you know, we always are striving to make a double or hopefully a triple. And uh, gosh, I had a chance to uh, shoot at two distinct ranges with it. And uh, it was it was pretty lethal. I enjoyed it a lot. It's <laughs> awesome, isn't it? It was. So, you know, I keep talking to you about this and it's, it's kind of hard to get past the point of who was president when you were born? Do you well, remember? 19, well, I have to do the math, but uh, 1930, uh, you know, I remember Roosevelt and uh, Wendell Wilkie running for vice president. And uh, uh, I guess I have to confess that I've spent most of my time in life, uh, family first, family and kids, and hunting. <laughs> and and what, after, what year were you born? 1930. You were born in the year 1930. Correct. You started hunting when you were eight. Correct. In 1938. So you've yes. been hunting for 80 years. That's correct. 80 freaking years. You're 88 <laughs> years old and you're out there like a kid in a candy store or a kid on Christmas Eve waiting for Santa. I saw you every morning. You're you're dressed in, the, in all your gear. You're out helping set up the spread and you're just, you get giddy with it, right? Well, I do. I mean, it's not normal. When you're 88 years old, you don't see a lot of guys up at 4.30 in the morning that are still brave in those elements as far. And I'm not saying that duck hunting is like being a soldier or being a heart surgeon. I'm just saying that it's cold. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of de dedication and sacrifice to do that. And you're out there every day and you've been doing it for 80 years. To me, that's a that's an amazing accomplishment. Really? To, and 
and, and, and good for you to be, you know, in the shape that you're at still today. But is it safe to say that, that the laughing and the time in the blind and the time at the camps is good for the soul and good for the blood and good for your, your just overall bodily makeup? And that's what's helping you live such a long, prosperous life? Well, I think, you know, you have to, it's a combination of a few things, but I think it's important to look ahead. You know, they say when the past is more vivid than the future, old age will definitely set in. And to me, it's just a number. And uh, I, uh, I kind of disregard it in terms of limitations. Uh, unfortunately, there's a lot of times when the body will tell you, hey, I'm not good for that 20-mile hike up that mountainside, so we'll have to cut it down to 12, but we're still doing it as much as we can, and the only reason why we do it is just purely and simply, I like every phase of it. You know, uh, we talk about, uh, well, quote, shooting ducks. Well, that's just a little part of it. It's a little part of it. Uh, at heart, uh, I had uh, uh, my own aviary with 41 species of wild ducks under chain link fence in a acre pond. And I had uh, species from all of North America, some from South America, uh, some exotic species. And I spent hours just looking at those birds. And even this morning, uh, when uh, the boys and the dogs brought in uh, some of those nice northern mallards, I found myself telling you, gee, look at that. Look at the tail feathers on it, starting his third curl. You know, you've seen truckloads of ducks dead and alive, and I have seen a lot of them, but I still am enthralled by the beauty of the birds. And somebody told me one time, Would you, don't you uh, get tired of shooting these ducks? And I said, well, no, I don't. I said, but in case you're thinking I'm really a bad person, I kind of silently wish that when you shot one, you could go out there, smooth out his feathers, and release him like that goose the boys caught this morning, and there he flew away again. But uh, it's kind of funny how that changes, but I do have a very deep and a genuine fondness for the birds physically, and I've enjoyed watching them, and uh, I think... That's the kind of stuff that helps you with your calling and understanding ducks. Gee, I, I used to watch these birds in the aviary for hours on end. And I, I just grew up that way, enjoying the birds, and I'm still in, enjoying them now. And um, you bring up a good point as far as the heart of a hunter. And you know, that whole feeling of we are out there and we do dispatch animals. We take their lives. We're, we, that's a big responsibility when you point a weapon at an animal, a wild animal. And, you know, I don't like hearing things like I hate coyotes or screw a coyote. And I have an ultimate respect for a coyote and they're, the way they're able to adapt. And I'm not trying to get off course, but even when it comes to waterfowl hunting, the act of squeezing a trigger and having the lethality that the com the combination of these guns and, and ammunition and choke tubes have today. And, and it started with me a long time ago. And then it got even more, you know, more full in my heart when I started you know, breaking down a lot of the footage over the last five or six years with these high-speed cameras and the slow motion effect of it. And 
it's a sad act. And um, I don't feel sorry that I do it. I, I just have a lot of compassion and respect and love for the animals that we pursue. And I do. I like that analogy of being able to bring them back to life. I do enjoy, you know, butchering them and processing them and preparing them and eating them and being creative with the culinary part of duck hunting and wild game fare and, and putting it on the table for friends and family. But there's just something that that I think as you mature into your hunting career that um, that it really doesn't matter. I don't really care about huge piles. I'm not afraid to shoot a limit. I'm not saying that that's not a great feed or that you, that it's a great feeling when you get to that diner, that, 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 you know, that biscuits and gravy breakfast that morning with all your buddies and you got a limit and now you got to go take care of them. Now you got another responsibility that you have to fulfill with, with the limited birds and all that meat. But I think with what you're saying, Mr. John is dead on is that as a hunter and a conservationist, and I'm sure that you've done, you know, we'll get into, you know, your share of cons conservation over the years and your dedication to animals and, and putting more birds in the flyway or more deer, elk on the mountain. There's just a huge amount of compassion in a hunter's heart that goes out for these. And that's why I think it's so important to not give anybody the ability. And tell me if you agree with this, but I don't like seeing disrespect to things like I've even seen videos on the you know the social media craze in our world now is where I'm not I don't know who they are I don't care who they are it's just and if they listen to this there's no reason to ever take a pile of like let's say example the other day I saw this picture that these guys were like referring to ducks as a football and they were throwing them through the air and I'm like that's not what that that's not what you're supposed to do with a duck you don't throw a dead animal through the air just for a picture it's not cool it doesn't look good, and it shows your inadequacy to be a true conservationist and have true compassion for the animals you pursue. Now, somebody might go, oh, give me a break. It's a duck. And I'm like, yeah, it's a duck, but it deserves more respect than that. You just killed the thing. So you don't make a mockery of it and joke around with it. Does that make sense to you? Well, it really does. And uh, I remember as a, as a young kid when I first started getting the different species, uh, I could identify them after looking in books and uh, I had a mentor who had a processing plant, and I remember being a small kid, and I would go in there, and uh, the name was Frank Bruno, and I'd say, Mr. Bruno, what kind of a duck is this? And he was very patient, and uh, in a matter of just a few short months, I could identify all the ducks. They were on duck straps, you know, boy, there's a spoonie, there's a widgeon, and there's a pintail, and... Uh, I was so fascinated by the beauty of these birds that when he was butchering them, he would take off the heads. And I asked him one time, I said, Mr. Bruno, could I have some of these heads? He said, well, what are you going to do with them, John? And I said, well, I want to show them to my mother. So I come home with a package of butcher paper, and I've got the head of a drake mallard and a hen and a pintail and a widgeon and at the time, we had a lot of redheads in the area. And I took these things home, and my mother said, well, they are beautiful. And I had them all slicked down, petted down. They looked just like they were alive. And uh, the next day, uh, they uh, uh, were having show and tell. And my mother, being a great mother, said, well, Sonny Boy, what are you going to take to show and tell? And I said, I'm going to take my duck heads, Mom. <laughs> and I did take them. And I did take them. And I got a pretty nice reception about it. I said, well, now you can take those out of here, John. But yeah. I, I did show them off. And uh, I still like to look at the birds, dead or alive. I do like to see them. 
I wonder how that would go over in today's classroom. <laughs> Dude, I don't want to go there. Maybe in Montana it might. Maybe, just maybe. California, not a chance. No, in, in Montana, we've got a good group of down-to-earth people that are really committed to the great outdoors. They love hunting of all types. Uh, uh, a lot of people are there to fill the freezer. and They enjoy trout fishing. We've got a nice selection of animals there, so it's... Well, one of the reasons why I moved from Texas, I just wanted to get closer to this epicenter where I'd be. In. Is it really God's country? Oh, Montana? Yeah. oh yeah, it is. I uh, talked to my good wife uh, last night, and I said, how's the weather? She says, well, she says, I looked at uh, the inside, uh, the outside thermometer, and it's 10 degrees right now. But, you know, weather, again, going back to how things change, we have cold weather gear. People nothing think nothing of going skiing and very, very difficult weather because they have good clothing, boots, insulation. Uh, when you think of Montana, it's not uh, wood stoves anymore. We have central heat and air, heated floors, insulation. So we can live for four months of the year with cold weather, and it's not formidable. Do you do you think that your world travels would would they bring you back to America? As far as I know, you're from here, but I know there's also this. You know, you can relocate. Take hunting out of it for a minute. We'll go to hunting next. But as far as America being a great country, you've been all over from Afghanistan to Pakistan to South America, Central America, Europe, Alaska. You name it, you've done it. 31 countries you've traveled to, to to pursue your passion of the outdoors and hunting. But as far as just life and the people, is America a standard? Is it the gold standard? Are we with are we upholding our end of the bargain when it comes to being a good people, the the leaders of, of our world, of the free world? Well, there's absolutely no comparison at any level based on my physical and personal observations. Uh, our natural resources, our lifestyle, our opportunity for growth and advancement, uh, there's just no comparison. There's a lot of wonderful, engaging history in places like Turkey and Pakistan, Italy. Many, many places are very beautiful in part, but in terms of opportunity and actual population spread over the geographic area. This is the greatest place in the world. We're very fortunate to have been born here and to be living here. As difficult as times are today, they're not maybe as difficult as maybe back in the days of the pioneers, but they're stressful times and people have different opinions. And that, of course, is what makes the world go round, all the different. But there is absolutely no comparison and uh, uh, taking the hunting aspect out of it uh, we're just living in a super place if you like beaches we've got them in florida we got them in california we've got it on the gulf coast if you like skiing we've got skiing it's all here for us and uh well i i just have to say god bless america <laughs> i love it now what about hunting would you we, I know a lot of, I know hunting is awesome everywhere. Um, 
you know, it, you can always say, well, I remember that, and I remember this, and this hunt did this for me, but would you come back to the continental United States again as being your go-to for hunting? Yeah, you, you would have to do it because when you couple the opportunities and how you take it and make it happen, materialize, uh, you have to have an opportunity. I guess what I'm really saying in disguise is hunting is a very expensive sport and has gotten tremendously expensive. And uh, uh, if you live in a third world country, you have to change your entire lifestyle. I have thought, and my good wife goes along with me on that, and that's why we moved from Texas and kind of liquidated all of our uh, more civilized uh, uh, assets and went to Montana. We wanted to get away from the crowds, traffic jams, uh, uh, road rage, and all the things that go on in cities all over the world, not unique to us. But there are still some very peaceful and uh, wonderful locations where you can live here. And uh, uh, I have certainly thought about, well, gosh, maybe it might be fun to move to South America. I speak the language comfortably. And uh, maybe... Maybe Argentina, they've got unlimited hunting, and you uh, could hunt yourself black and blue there 365 days a year. But there are other sacrifices that go with it. So I think we have here in the U.S. Uh, a super combination that can't be beat. We've got opportunity, lifestyle, habitat, and we've got pretty adequate hunting here. It has gotten more difficult to hunt in the States, but it's gotten more difficult to hunt everywhere in the world, even Africa. Oh, I agree with that. Do you, do you think that um, you know, one of, one of your, your best parts of your story, in my opinion, is, is business and leadership and knowing how to see an opportunity and you know, put the wheels in motion for that opportunity and build a team around you and motivate a team and have those qualities of a leader like you did throughout your business career. Um, do you, do you look at any correlation, but you know, of being a successful hunter? And I know that you have to have financial gains to do what you've done. It's not a secret. You don't hunt 31 countries and harvest the animals that you did without a couple of different ways, inheritance, which you didn't have, or a work ethic, which you do have. And seeing that opportunity and, and building the businesses that you did and the wealth that you did and the income and the revenue that for you did for these companies, do you see a correlation of success in the field as 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 being a leader in business, meaning that you, when you take those leadership skills out in the field, do, does that have anything to do with being able to scout, you know, climb 13,000 feet after a big desert ram or a big Rocky Mountain sheep or one of the sheeps that you chase over in Pakistan or Russia. I'm trying to get to the to the, the, uh, the most successful hunters that I've seen in these careers that get a, to do what you do are also very successful businessmen and they have that tenacity, businessmen, they have that tenacity, those leadership skills. Is that fair to say or am I off my rocker when I'm with the question I'm asking? You no, know, I, I understand that and I think it's really a matter of focus and determination. Uh, when you're building a business, of course, you look for all the ingredients that will make you successful, super personality, proper uh, uh, assistance, associates, capitalization, finance. So those all play a part in the growth. When you uh, 
on that mission, when you're on that mission for growth, you're very sharply focused. And I think it's the same way with hunting. When you decide, I like this, those same skills that you use, I think that's the correlation you're making. What you did to make a business work also works to make hunting work. And to hunt properly, you have to do some research, but you have to keep your eye on the ball. and You have to check out your references, your travel, the safety, your gear, and you're really focused on it. And it's very, very easy to focus on something you love. And, you know, I dreamt about being able to hunt. I would go to sleep at night. I still have a pretty big wildlife library, and I remember where I almost memorized a 300-page hunting book by Jay Mellon, and uh, I just knew all about it, and I'd put myself to sleep every night. My mother said, oh, Sonny, you went to sleep last night with that heavy book on your chest. I came in and checked on you, and the book was still open. So, uh, you know, when you have that kind of focus, it stays with you. And uh, I look forward to every hunt. I'm already looking forward to tomorrow. I'm still excited about it. I'm still looking forward to it. I still plan it. You know, uh, someone asked me, one of the boys in the field said, well, where's your next trip? And I thought for a minute, I said, well, I'm going to be going to the Platte River in Nebraska and and then I'll be going on a couple trips to Oklahoma. Then I'll be going down to the Texas coast, and we'll finish up in February down in Mexico on the west coast hunting for brant geese. And it's a big concentration of pintails uh, down there. Uh, almost all bull sprig are congregated together at that time. And then in a matter of a couple of weeks, they'll be joined by the hens, and then there'll be back off to the breeding ground. So I look forward to all of that. And I, I might interject that the correlation between business and hunting was kind of backwards. Uh, the ability to hunt came from the business, but the desire to make the business grow came from the hunting desire. People always ask, well, uh, when you started working, were you thinking about this kind of success? And I said, oh, I, I'm pretty competitive. Uh, and I said, well, yeah, I wanted to be the best. And we ended up being the best. Uh, actually, uh, the company ended up being number two in the world for size and number one for a privately owned company. So I, I felt good about it. But down deep, the real motivation was, well, you know, if I can have another good year, I could plan some more hunting trips. And that's what I really like to do. As I said earlier, it's simple. I'm a family guy. I love my wife, my kids, my family life. And boy, then it's all hunting. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not a, a clean liver. I'm not an angel by a long shot. But uh, that hunting is the thing. I don't go out with the boys. I don't play pool. There's nothing wrong with that. I don't play cards. I don't go to the football games, but I do like to watch hunting movies if I'm not uh, uh, doing it in the flesh. I like to watch NFL football and MMA contests. You know, I, I can talk about a lot of different things. I like automobiles and car racing and all that. But down deep, 
It's family and hunting. That's my bottom line. And it has been for a long time. Yeah, all my life. So if I came up to you and I get this question asked to me a lot through, again, through personal contacts or through social media, because in today's world, you 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 have access to a lot of different people. I could go onto your Instagram and at 88 years old, you're showing the world what you've done through this app that somebody in Italy could bring John LaMonico up at John LaMonico on Instagram and see what you're doing in the field. And today I posted a picture of you and I with with some of our success that we had in the field yesterday. And I got comments about, you know, good job, John, and all this stuff. And, and, and I, you know, people are writing in, hey, it's great that you're hunting with John. He's a hell of a man and all this. And um, I get asked the question a lot. How do I get to do what you do? I want to work in the duck world. I want to be a hunter. I want to be, um, I want to be doing what you're doing. You know, they look at what we're doing through this access. They see us on TV. They hear us on this podcast. They see our social media. They might come meet us at a live event or they might see us in public running the roads because we're just normal out, you know, just out on a dirt road, you know, scouting for mallard ducks in Kansas. And I don't, it's hard to answer because I don't want to sit there and ever give them false you know, false pretenses about, well, learn how to blow a duck call and learn how to be a world champion shooter. Cause I know a lot of world champion shooters that have been on the Olympic team that have been Olympic alternate that just have, that have a nine to five and a family and they're happy with that. I know world champion duck callers that, that, you know, just have a normal nine to five job and they're happy with that. So I don't ever, I never really know how to answer the question except to, to go along what I just asked you about the correlation between business and, and leadership and networking and communication and transparency and all of these um, characteristics that I've seen in this melting pot of what I call success that a lot of people that I've ran across that are in that pot of success, they have all the same traits, it seems like. So I try to tell people, and you, you want to you wanna get your education. And if you go to college, it's not necessarily has to be so, you know, regimented that you're like, well, I'm, I'm going to be a doctor. I'm not saying that you have to be, you know, have to have that specialized of an education. But in college, you learn how to juggle. You learn how to be self-motivated, a self-starter. Nobody's waking you up in the morning and making you go to class. Your professors could care less if you're there or not. You got to really discipline yourself to deliver. And I'm not even saying that you have to go to college to be successful. But I try to tell them, you know, be discipline be a self-starter make sure that you can network can you look somebody in the eyes across the table and, and negotiate or talk or sell yourself to them or get them motivated can you motivate a team do you have and and i don't know like when they read it they're always like oh man that's way more you know i didn't know it was that complex and i don't want to scare people away from from being you know whatever i am or whatever you are but you don't just wake up and go, all right, well, I'm going to hunt 31 countries and, and build a self-worth to be able to do that without hard work and all of those other characteristics I just named. So how would you answer that question? John, I got your books. Man, I want to do what you do. When I'm 85 years old, I want to be able to have my own book that shows the, a trophy room the size of a football stadium. And I want to have a, 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 just a pictures of all over the country. There, is it hard to answer that question on how to get there? Well, it's pretty complex because everyone is is different and i would just say uh, uh, kind of follow your heart and really check what's a priority in your life what is it you really want to do and you'd be surprised that uh, uh, a lot of people don't really have this obsessive passion that people like yourself and a lot of people that we know that are prominent in the hunting world uh, it's kind of an obsessive thing and if you really look at it uh, uh, I only have to correct you because I 
I have a very modest trophy room. It's not the size of a football field. That kind of scared me for a minute, Chad. I said, "Gee, this sounds." Pretty. It doesn't look like it doesn't look but, like it's not a football field. But John. it's a it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun, and follow your heart and find out what your priorities are, and then do what you have to do to get to those priorities. That's the way I look at it. Do what you have to do. Work hard, and you know we. We know a lot of people, as you say, world championship callers and things like that. They're uh, uh, just guys that have an eight to five job and they're very happy. Uh, but if you aspire to really going in, in depth to something, it's just like a sport. You could be a hell of a high school football player. and Then you could go to college and find out, gosh, you'd be lucky if you make the team. And then you can also be good enough that you make the pros at age 22 and you sign a, a huge contract. So it's just a lot of individual differences come up. But the main thing, I like to sell everybody on the idea, try to have a good time in life. I think we only pass this way one time. At least I don't know of anybody that's come back for a second trip. So don't postpone anything. Try to follow your dreams, and I try to do anything as long as it doesn't uh, abuse anybody, hurt anybody, and I take care of my responsibilities. And the big thing I like to do is is hunting, and after doing the big game uh, rather comprehensively, uh, I don't have much more room in the trophy room unless I start upgrading. I'm full and uh, I, uh, all my bird mounts, uh, uh, I can't add anything How many, how many animals do you have mounted? Oh, a couple of hundred, really. I think it's right at 220 or something like that. So you can fit 220 animals in a room that's not as big as a football field? Well, it, yeah, <laughs> it, it, it's a combination of, uh, of uh, three rooms, but uh, uh, I do have a lot of waterfowl mounts, so close to 250. Oh, wait, so the... So the animals that I just asked you about, you have 200 big game mounts? Yeah, those are just big game. Yeah. And 250 waterfowl mounts? Yes. And uh, those... That's, over, that's, more, that's closer to 500 animals. Well, that's Mr. right. But, but the birds could fit on a 30-foot wall, you know, or something like that. And I've got them somewhat scattered through the house. Uh, uh, I'm still looking for a blue phase Ross goose. I think I have everything in North America, all the, the waterfowl. I think there's maybe one or two species like the Florida tree duck, which is really a subspecies of the fulvus or the black-bellied tree duck. But the big one that I would have liked to have uh, uh, taken, and it's strictly a matter of, of luck, would be a blue-phased Ross goose. Blue-phased? Yes. And you have... I'm just trying to picture this. Like, this is mind-blowing to me because I thought I had a lot of waterfowl mounts, and I have... 40 maybe 35 or 40 which is a, well, is a there's only amount. there's only 41 in the u.s most for, of mine are mallards though oh you well know, that, I, you I, know, duplicates I, nothing I, wrong is that wrong that. is that wrong you think mr john for me to be a mallard purist because i just want to hunt mallards like i'm not saying i'm a purist that's the wrong word to use but i love calling puddle ducks but there's just something about mallards and i i know you can call sprig and i know you oh. can whistle widgeon and i love the way they all work and i love eating them all but there's just something about the mallard duck well, you know, he's very prominent, he's very bold, and he's a perfect gentleman. You ever notice, of course you have, uh, 
when the uh, Drake Mallard comes in, he always knocks before he opens the door. Yeah. That's when oh, he yeah. gives it that three or four beep, yeah. beep, usually on the downwind leg, you know. And uh, I like that, but uh, w you and I could have a heck of a dissertation about the Mallard pintail syndrome. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I'd feel comfortable not debating that, but uh, exchanging that information. I have really got a soft spot for for pintails, and I think that they fly far more beautifully than a mallard. Would you give me that? I would say that acrobatically or the way they cut the wind, they're pretty elegant. I, I think that they're they're more of a sissy duck. I That's think that right. they're scared. I think they're beautiful, and I love a long sprig. I think widgeon cut the the wind like there's no tomorrow. I love cotton tops and hearing them. They're fast. They're like a little like a mallard teal mix kind of. Um, yeah, I would probably give you that the way that they approach the the decoy spread or that how elegant a pintail is. I think elegance is a good word to wear. A pintail is more, I mean, a, a, like a, let's take a canvas back is more brute. They're just, they're flying fast. They're going to come through that wall. They're going to bust down the door with their big black feet. I, I would give you that. If, if we were going to have a dissertation, there's going to be different boxes that we would check for each of them. But I think that the mallard for me is the communication, the vocabulary part of it, the talking he's to. He's more vocal. He's I'll more give vocal. you that. And I think they're more responsive. I think a hen mallard and the and the sounds that we're making on a hen mallard call, a single reader, double double reader, whatever call their you know style you blow or operate. There's just something about the way they react to a call. To where when you're calling pintails or gadwalls, even you might see a reaction, but I never really know are they reacting to me or are they just being you know just doing their thing. So. But I do like the way they lock up. I love the way they look. I'd much rather cook a mallard than any other duck. I know a lot of people I, say teal. I'll, I'll give you that on the like on a corn-fed mallard where you right. eat or something where you live. Wood ducks are good. Teal are very good. Canvas back are very good. A lot of ducks you can make taste good, but a a, a, a big mature corn-fed mallard is is tough to beat. You know, I like uh, the expression uh, when I was uh, at the meat processing plant inspecting ducks as a kid. Uh, the owner would show me a mallard that he just plucked, and he said, now, John, this is a perfect, and he called him a checkerboard mallard, had the skin on, and you could just see the profile. It was just beautifully done. So we could go on for all day, Chad, talking about uh, uh, these duck species. Uh, uh, there's still uh, uh, a lot of points I, I could make and you could make, but we're already tied for two points apiece, so we better get off that thing before <laughs> yeah, we have an arm wrestling yeah. contest over I, it. I, I don't think I would arm wrestle you, but I would, I would put up a mallard duck hunt in Arkansas or a river hunt off the Missouri up by Bismarck, North Dakota, something. Even a cornfield mallard hunt, when they get powerful and they group, grouped up, I don't know if there's a better duck to be under. And I know that, you know, as far as, you know, you talked about the actual value of a waterfowl hunt and, and what North and what South America offers, specifically Argentina. I just got back from Argentina. I've been lucky to be down there quite a bit. And, you know, the, the, the rosy bill. And again, you have a duck that is like a kamikaze. They're big, they're powerful, they're beautiful. A lot of people refer to them as the mallard of that region of the world. They eat good but they're not a mallard. It's not something that you can put the call to your mouth and go, watch this, guys. 
and see that duck spin and then and see it kind of flutter in the air and read that body language and put those feet down. Maybe a really good, successful, experienced guide that does it day in and day out during the Argentina duck season might get that response. But going down there for four or five, six days at a time like we do, I'm like, I love it. I would never, ever bitch about somebody inviting me to Argentina. But again, all the species down there are kind of just... They're silent. They're silent and they're coming and they're going to, they see a spinning wing and they're, they're on you. They don't get a lot of hunting pressure. A lot of them are born in Brazil. Correct me if I'm wrong, but there's no hunting in Brazil. No guns allowed as they migrate South through Northern Argentina. They, you know, they get down to that part of Buenos Aires and West of Buenos Aires and South of Buenos Aires. And, and they don't see a lot of hunting. There's not a lot of hunting down there unless it's by, by tourist, right? That's right. Not a lot of locals. So I don't know. I just think that, that waking up in America and knowing that there's mallards around, that there's fresh mallards and the migration's on, I would go into a thesis or into a public debate forum and stand behind a podium and give my feelings on why the mallard duck has driven me to be maybe a purist. I'm not saying that because that would mean I wouldn't shoot at anything else. I like to eat the other ones. I love a good teal hunt. Maybe not September. I love a good teal hunt, though, when it's on and, and, and you know, down south in November. I just I, I think I can make a pretty good argument of the lifestyle of a mallard hunter and why it's the best. And I don't want to argue. I'm just saying I think I could make that argument with you if we had to. I, I think I'm going to have to send you a, a, a publication that I drew up, and it's called A Tribute to the Pintail. And I'll let that stand on its own. <laughs> Otherwise, as I say, we'll, we'll, we'll be in a tussle and you'll win that. Uh, but uh, it is nice that we can enjoy these birds Isn't to it? that it's degree. Awesome. We're absolutely passionate do about it. Do you enjoy sea duck hunting? And all, Do you enjoy that no, part of it? No. Uh, I've been on the sea duck. I've got, I think, all of the sea ducks, scoters, harlequins, Pacific eiders, uh, old squaw, things like that. Uh, they're beautiful birds, but I really uh, don't care for deep water hunting, and that includes canvasback. I've done that. Uh, I, I'm just not comfortable being in a heavy seas and a small boat fooling around with waders on and, and the two boxes of shells in my jacket. Uh, I, I'm just not comfortable with it, so I really don't do it too much. But I've done it. You've done it. Now, you... I don't want to start. I don't. It's hard to get in when you're talking to a duck hunter as passionate as you are, and a hunter as passionate you are. You've you've scoured this world, 31 countries, which is an unbelievable feat. Like I'm envious of it. Like to the point to where it's like, man, I go to Canada, I go to Argentina, I've been to Europe, I've been, you know, in 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 other parts of the world. But to say that I've hunted in 31 countries, congratulations! That's an honor to 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 be around somebody that's done that and has been able to accomplish that. And a lot of that, I assume, is big game hunting. When you start talking about Afghanistan's and, and over in, in the Far East and, and Europe, and I, I would assume that a lot of your travels were centered around that big game portion of your hunting, quote unquote, career, because you were never getting paid to do it. You were just doing it out of love and passion. Um, why this full circle, though? Why? are you back on waterfowl? Why didn't big game, is it because, uh, is it the wear and tear on a person's body to be able to scour the mountains? Is it something that you had to slow down on? Or is that love of waterfowl hunting just so deep in your blood that you, that you wanted to come back to it at 88 years old? Well, not 88, but the last 10 years or whatever. Yeah. I would say that it's a combination of those things. Uh, 
I felt as though I had accomplished what I wanted to. Uh, I have to really enjoy an animal before I want to hunt it. And before I do hunt it, I try to make it my business to know everything you have to know about a greater kudu, if that's what I'm going to hunt, or uh, a Blandford Uriel. I want to know about the habitat. I want to know about the areas that have produced the best heads. I've kind of fulfilled that uh, the physical room to place these things and the thought of uh, adding to a collection uh, what happens when I go to the happy hunting grounds? Somebody wakes up and they say, well, what in the world do we do with this? And uh, that's a big thought. And I said, well, probably at 88, it's not too smart to continue uh, to uh, collect these beautiful heads there are dozens and dozens and hundreds of people that have far more trophies than I have. I have known people who have hunted and are on a mission to hunt every recognizable duck in the world, not in North America or South America, in the world. And uh, they're doing that sort of thing. Uh, my, my quest is much more modest. I've always tried to get high quality animals or pass on anything that's substandard but uh, you do have wear and tear where the mountains get steeper that's a good way to look at it, it seems like they've gotten a lot steeper uh, they have. And, and eventually as I, I have to say well I don't know too many guys that are doing what I'm still liking to do uh, down deep and uh, a fellow who helped me with uh, some of the writing, uh, Bob Anderson, he's an authority on uh, big game. Uh, he said, I think down deep, John has always been a waterfowl hunter. And I think that's true. Uh, that really turned my crank at an early age, and I've never gotten over it. And I, I think that's the way I'd like to wind up the hunting career. And I have to say, well, eventually... You know, uh, there's no stopping you though. Don't well, even start talking about that. I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to stop. Would you ever mount another bird? A blue phage Ross. Blue yeah, Ross. I yeah, I. I just had to throw that in there. Is like, well, if you're 88 and you've mounted all these animals, I mean, is that the only one? Like those mallards we shot today were beautiful. Oh yeah. yeah. You didn't just go like, man, if I just get one more mallard mount, you know, I, I know the perfect spot in my house. No, there is no doesn't perfect even, spot. Doesn't even cross your mind anymore. No, my. My uh, great wife says, uh, listen, there's a lot worse things that John could be doing other than uh, uh, hunting. So she endorses that, and we try not to let it uh, overpower our home, but uh, uh, we do have a lot of uh, emphasis on waterfowl. Do you have a lot of guests that come over there? Uh, not too many. You know that old saying, many are called, but few are chosen. And <laughs> I, I'm pretty selective. I really have never aspired to seek popularity in the hunting world or to be a factor or something like that. I enjoy talking to people like yourself who at heart know exactly what I'm saying. And I know exactly what you're saying because we share it at the same level. I know a lot of people say, well, I, I, I went duck hunting three times last year. Well, if I can, I like to go three times, uh, three weeks a year, if yeah. I could, uh, three weeks a month, if I could. And I'm, kind of on that cycle right now and eventually the you know the travel and the logistics and the planning uh, it slows you down because you you know that's your livelihood and your life 
uh, hunting, and it's a lot of work. Lots. And again, you know, uh, on the home front, uh, uh, Robin does all the bookkeeping, gets all the licenses, makes the airline reservations. And if you have to do that, you know how much work it is. So, so much, so much. Can I hire her too? Can oh, she, she's good at she's it. Good at it. Yeah, she's. So you made a statement right there, and I want to get into the next part of my conversation with you. And right now I'm looking at John J. LaMonico, L-O-M-O-N-A-C-O, A Hunting Lifetime is a book. The next one I'm looking at is John J. LaMonico, Passions Continue, Friends, Old and New. Um, it looks like it looks like Robert Anderson was part of both of these books. And you just made a statement in your last when you were talking a second ago, Mr. John, about you were never seeking popularity. And to to put out a book that is like this, the first thing that I thought of when I opened it, I met you in Saskatchewan and all of a sudden, you know, not all of a sudden, but one day, you know, to, you know, my surprise, FedEx or UPS dropped off a package and I opened it up and it's this first book, uh, A Hunting Lifetime. And I opened up the front cover and there was a personal, it was personalized by, and I was like, man, what a awesome man to take the time out of his life to do that for me. And then I started to ingest the book a little bit more. And I was like, Oh, this isn't just a coffee table picture book. There's a lot of time that went into the writing of this and, and, and a lot of passion. And you say you weren't looking for credibility, but when you write a book, you still have to have the mindset that somebody's going to want to read this or else it's just a, a diary really. So did it start off as something that you just wanted to have all of your stories wrapped into one central place? Obviously you couldn't fit them into one. So you have two, there's probably enough stories in your mind for a lot more of these. Obviously they take some time, even though you told me that it just spews out of you when you put the pencil to paper, were you looking for somebody to go, wow, what a hunting career? Or did you just want to be able to say, I'm so blessed to be able to do what I've done over the last 50 years, and here's, here's why. Well, I, I primarily did that uh, to uh, somewhat organize all of the photos and the memories. You know, it's kind of like uh, uh, people that tell a joke, and they tell her a story, they tell a good story, and it's, well, that reminds me of something else. Well, I couldn't really clear my mind with all of these memories and the hunting memories are indelibly etched in my mind. I can go in the trophy room. You can say, what kind of an animal is that? Where'd you get it? Who were you hunting with? Did it take you a lot of shots? Was it a hard hunt? And I just visualized this whole thing. So I wanted to somewhat organize the stories in my mind so that I can remember certain events. Uh, I've got some wonderful kids. And I said, well, uh, I'd like to leave this little legacy to them well this is what dad was doing uh it's a big thought big thought and uh, also uh i said uh you know not everybody does this but i think it's a good way for uh, people uh, to remember me yeah you know we're, we're all soon forgotten but uh uh it's uh it was kind of a legacy thing. It's I really think legacy. it is. And it's like, but there still has to be the mindset of people are going to want to look at this and people are going to want to read this. And the stories in these books and the experiences that wild animals have brought to you, your wife, your friends, these, it's to me, 
I thought I had a big network when I when I go into my network of you know the people that I communicate with or associate with. You're looking at pictures in these books. I'm looking at guys that are in New Zealand and Afghanistan that that you have quotes from and that were your that are your friends, your lifelong friends. <clears throat> and to me, that's what this career is about: a hunting lifetime, friends, old and new, passions continued, and. You you see it a lot of the humility in a hunter of what how humbling mountains can be, how humbling a flock of ducks can truly do to you, the therapy that being out here provides. And when I go through these books, I look at it as there's not one bit of ego that is in these books at all, where at first glance you could be like, oh, well, man, he's just a big, rich guy that gets to go over anywhere he wants. And that's not this at all. And I think that if people take the time to get to know somebody, and I think that's what this book did for me, that if you really see the love you have for animals and the people that you've met, like this man right here. I mean, tell me about this picture right here. Do you remember this picture right here? Oh, yeah, absolutely. What is this picture right here? Just tell me so the guys, the people listening. A cashmere markor taken in Pakistan in the snow-capped mountains on the... Uh, upper uh, part of the picture are the border between Afghanistan and Pakistan. So it was right on uh, the uh, western border of uh, Pakistan. And that was a, a wonderful hunt with uh, uh, my good friend, uh, Khan Karakaya from Turkey. And he. That's him right here? No, that's me. That's you? That's correct, sir. I, would, I didn't want to correct you on that. But, so uh, this is, this, you look like you're playing the part over oh, there. That's right. I have uh, several photos in there with the local people under the Pakistan chapter. And uh, uh, I look a little darker than most of them. And uh, uh, you'll see me. That's me also with the turban on in the front of the book. Yeah. On the front cover on the bottom left. That's me. Wow. So you're, so you go over here and you, you partake in the apps in, in the entire lifestyle. Well, you have you're, to do. You're that. wearing a turban, and this is in Pakistan, and you have to do it. Why? Well, you want to fit in. You don't want to go over there with your cowboy hat on and a pair of blue jeans and white sneakers and a big uh, rodeo uh, buckle. I mean, that's not the costume that people are all uh, stereotypical and uh, very very modest, and uh, they gave me that outfit for the pictures and uh, uh, people would come up to me and they'd uh, want to talk to me in Farsi, the local international language, and they would just come running up to me and say, Farsi? And I said, no, no. And they, oh. they were disappointed that we couldn't do it because communication, you know, is such a big thing in life and uh, these people are as interested in knowing about our life as their life. And... Uh, I can't help, as I say, it's like telling a story and one leads to another, but I was uh, in the company of your great videographers here and photographers taking these just staggering pictures in the field, and I said, gosh, I was a, a photographic star in 1976. I went to Mongolia, and I had a camera, and it was called a Polaroid land camera. And it took an immediate picture on the spot, not digital, a physical paper picture. <laughs> and I would take a picture of you, and it would make a lot of racket, and the, and the camera would kind of buck, and it would spit out three pieces of paper, uh, the film that's developed, a back piece of backing, and a cover. And so I'd take this out 
peel off this moist sticker, almost like a pressure-sensitive label, take the other picture and put the hard back to this picture underneath my desk and hold it like this. And the people were watching me just bug-eyed. And in a minute and a half, the color would develop. And I'd pull that thing out. And they had never seen a photo of themselves. And people came from miles away on horses. Wow. Says, would you take his picture? I remember the film was like bringing three boxes of shotgun shells. You know, it was real bulky. And every, every picture had three pieces of paper to it. And, you know, there's very few people today who ever heard of a Polaroid land camera, but that would be equivalent to having the first digital camera in California. You know, it was a big thing. And it was so you given, really were a, a hotshot photographer in Mongolia. Oh, I was a hero. I was a hero. <laughs> and I still have a couple of those photos hanging around, and they, uh, they're starting to uh, fade out completely. But it sure gave those people a lot of joy. And it gave me a lot of joy, and it still does. I wanted to ask you this question. Going to all these places that you have, you know, a lot of them are countries that have been at the center stage of, of battles with our country or us going to protect other, you know, through the United Nations or whatever it might be. We've been at battle with some of these countries. Have you, could you sit there and say it's, it amazes you that we are and we understand as, as American citizens what our military means and, you know, what going to battle and what war is and in protecting our freedoms and protecting the, uh, you know, the rights of people around the world and helping people. Is it hard? Looking through here, there's so many smiles on your face with the locals. Is it hard for you to digest that, that there are people in these countries that are bad? And that, because it looks like a great place the way that you portray it. Well, uh, I've enjoyed every minute of it. And, uh, I'm a great believer that our people are people regardless of where they come from, what their religion might be, what their color might be. Uh, you know, uh, people uh, in parts of uh, Asia and uh, Central Asia, they're very stoic, but uh, I developed some very, very close friendships with people that maybe I hunted there two or three times, and when I came back, they were happy to see me, I could tell from the hugs and the look in their eye. And I remember uh, I had a fellow on my first Mongolian hunt. He was a little guy, and uh, we hit it off very well. And uh, he uh, took me one afternoon uh, uh, when we were moving and motioned that he wanted me to go with him. And he brought out a, the equivalent of a, of a 22 rifle, single shot, old wooden stock. It had to be 20 years old. and he motioned to me, come along with me. And he pointed to some rocks and we went up about 150 yards and uh, he told me to sit down and he whistled a few times and he, there was a marmot or like a groundhog sat up about like this. And uh, he said, you shoot this. And I looked at the rifle and it was just a very crude V rifle with a front sight, you know. And uh, I said, gee, this thing's only about 40 feet away. And uh, I just asked him, I went like this to him, making a fork to show that. And I said, is it even with the top or does it set down in the <laughs> cradle? And he went just flat. And I shot this thing and I kind of shot him right in the body. 
And he said, oh, good, you know. And so we walked, and I said, well, that was fun. And he knew I liked it. And then he sat down, and he took the rifle, and I said, you shoot. And he shot, and he went over and got it. And then he showed me he shot it right between the eyes. And then he showed me mine where I shot it in the chest, and he went, no, no, no. Not good. See, you know, that was like shooting a duck on the water. Not good, you yeah. know, not good. And uh, he did that because they saved the fur. That was an important part. That's their coats and their vests are made of these marmot skins. Yeah. So he was he, looking ahead. Yeah. Here we are. I'm talking to a Mongolian that can't speak a word of English, and he's talking to an American, and uh, I can't speak a word of their uh, language but we still had Universal. a friendship Universal. we had a friendship yeah. and uh, that's what hunting does man. well I, yeah you, you, I, in, in your books that's where i was getting at is that i've always talked about how hunting is the common denominator that brings all these walks of life together well when i talk about it i'm like well i was in arkansas with a musician or i was in texas with a, a surgeon and i was with some veterans in idaho you know, and then you look at it on your scale and you're like, well, I'm with a guy that's in barefoot in a turban in Pakistan. And now you're really bringing so many different walks of life and, inter, you know, just different international backgrounds and ethnic backgrounds. And, and hunting's the universal language to where you see it a little bit out there. I know Shockey's had success in this realm and and and, and Brittingham, who you have history with with Jack Brittingham's family and his dad. You worked with him for 41 years and and built some, some major, major businesses, um, successful businesses. But you really have endured a hunting career that has brought so many memories to where that's what these books are about. When I go through these books, and I wish more people were like this, I'm not on a rah-rah, but I'm saying, like, good for you. Way to live the American dream. You got up in the morning, and you went, put your boots on, and you went to work. You raise kids to the point where I think you've said you have two in med school. You've, you have doctors and, and very successful kids. You've hunted all over the world, and I'm like, Good for you, man. Good for what you've accomplished. And I know that you're not looking for validation or validity on any of this. You're, I'm just saying, like, you've done it to the point to where you've made a lot of people happy through these travels. And you've made a lot of memories for a lot of different people, and you know, yourself included. But when I look at these books and I read what you write in them, I see a lot more than a dead animal on a wall at a, in a cabin in, in, or a nice house in Montana. Is that fair to say? Well, yes, that, that's a nice compliment. Uh, I appreciate it very much. And I guess, you know, I, I really got a little choked up talking about leaving this stuff to the kids and the legacy. But uh, down deep, there were a lot of people after the first book who really encouraged me to do a second book. And that's why I did it. And I wanted to include them in the book and uh, there's a lot of fine hunters and I, I don't ever want to come across as being anything like a hunting authority or a hunting great I'm just a guy that really likes to hunt I like it I like shooting I'm not afraid to miss you know there's people say oh man you know I got it I had somebody tell me he said I, he said gosh I missed the last three birds I don't know what's going on and I said well, just relax and have fun. And he says, what about my reputation? Well, gosh, it, that isn't what it's about at all. And uh, somebody told me one time, well, every bird that you don't shoot at is one you'll never shoot at. So I, I just enjoy very, very much what I'm doing, and I like to be around people 
that know what they're doing and enjoy it at the same at the same level. And that's one of the reasons why I'm uh, so happy about uh, being able to uh, share these moments with you and to sit down and talk about this. Uh, you know, this could go on for a long, long time just because we're speaking the same language. Yeah, we I, are. We could turn the microphone around and I could ask you a bunch of questions. Go ahead and ask me one. No, more. I'm just going. <laughs> I know enough about you and uh, and everyone else does. And uh, if you didn't know what you were doing and if I didn't respect that, there's a lot of places where you can go where you can find people like that. But uh, this is a very special thing. And uh, I, I think I shared with you briefly the thing that uh, uh, I was attracted to is that uh, you're... Uh, storylines take on a very humanistic approach. It isn't just a deal where, look, here's somebody shooting geese here and somebody shooting ducks here. Uh, you uh, bring in people that have interesting backgrounds. I was very impressed that you had a veteran on your show and then you bring other people who are really famous in their areas. And I said, gee, it'd be fun if we did nothing else and we already spent a couple days here when we were doing scouting and getting set up here. Uh, uh, I had a good time. I could have gone back home and said, gee, I had a heck of a good time in, uh, in Kansas, and that's because I enjoyed talking to you. The outfitters here, Mitch and his crew, they were all very, very friendly, shared any information. I asked a lot of questions, and they answered them all. You know, I said, why are these birds flying that pattern? I said, well, you see, there's a resting pond here, and then there's a cornfield over there. And they were very patient about it, and good memories have already been developed. And as I said, the end of the first day, I could have turned around and gone home and said, uh, well, I didn't do any hunting, but we had a hell of a nice visit. And that's a good feeling. That's a good feeling. I agree. I agree 100%. And I think that, you know, with people that get it, they'll, you know, and it might take a few years in a person's hunting career to understand the importance of the camp and, and how blessed we are to share the times we have here. And that's why I don't get too worked up when, when the birds, you know, quote unquote, don't cooperate because, you know, they're wild animals. They don't want to die. <laughs> you know, they're not going to cooperate. And when it all comes together and you have that awesome hunt or that perfect hunt, then, you know, that's icing on the cake, but there's so much more like what we're getting ready to do here tonight. We have mallards. Today we went for a dinner hunt. I wanted to hunt for our dinner. We worked hard to get the ducks that we did. Sometimes things don't work out. Tomorrow we could wake up and go be done in 15 minutes. And we're going to look at it and go, man, I'm glad that we didn't really mash them up yesterday real, fa real fast because it gave us time to talk and sit down and talk even more on a podcast right here, what we're doing now. And you know, that it's just one of those deals to where the, the, if you, if you have the right vision or the right approach or the right focus, then you can, you know, you're really going to get everything out of what a duck camp or a hunting camp has to offer, or one of these trips that you've been on around the world. And, and I know that these hunts that I'm looking at in these books are way more than the animals that you're holding in the picture. The animals mean a lot. Don't get me wrong. That's a huge accomplishment. But there's a lot of underlying story that goes with each one of these these trophies. Um, do you like the word trophy when it comes to animals, or is it, it doesn't bother me at all because it means different things to different people. I've had uh, people that said. Uh, I said, well, that's a nice animal that you took there. Yeah, he said, I think it'll beat my brother's. 
Well, I don't care about that whatsoever. I said, if you like them and it's got good memories for you, I look at some of these deals and I remember, you know, sleeping out on the rocks with a guide and we had a, a Hershey bar and no bottles of water in those days. But, uh, uh, you know, it's just a lot of good memories that occur out there and we're going to try to uh, develop more memories. We made some good ones every day, including today. Yeah, and I think that um, I was talking about the memory, you know, right before I asked you that question about trophies, I was thinking about what we're going to get to do tonight, which is a huge deal to me because I talked to you about, you know, eating duck and eating wild game, and you're like, oh, yeah, I love it, and, you know, we do this. And I look at it as like, man, this is a chance to go in and prepare some duck together or a, a recipe that I do. My buddy Brad Forsyth and I came up with this recipe that I'm going to do tonight. And I and I like that part of the camp and that part of the hunt of, like, not raw, raw, look at us, we're, we're, we're you know, cooking duck or making it taste good. We want people to go, man, I do like the part that we live off the land and we killed these mallards this morning and had a great hunt with a lot of laughs. And and now here we are with a Traeger lit up, a bottle of wine, and we get to sit and and enjoy our each other's company again over taking it to the full circle of preparing these ducks and eating them and 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 having a nice dinner with with Mitch and Tyler and Matt and the entire crew here. And that to me is what memories are is like I remember that part of a camp just as much as I remember shooting them. Don't get me wrong, the visions of ducks coming through mount flooded timber or into those fields or into a river, it's unbelievable, but I also get off a lot on this part of it and what we're getting ready to you know endure tonight. And then when it's done, we get to go to bed with dreams and visions of mallards in our head again. And we get to wake up tomorrow and go set up and do it again because we're duck hunters and we love this lifestyle. And we can't wait to be out there setting up a decoy spread with the guys in the morning and, and creating more memories and maybe going to the cafe with a successful bag tomorrow and, and having some biscuits and saying, hey, man, great to meet you guys and can't wait to, you know, there's always goodbyes and they suck. But in duck camp, there's always, man, I can't wait to see you again. Where are we meeting up next year? Where That's are we going right. to do this again? You know what I mean? Well, I'm already hungry, and I'm already looking forward to tomorrow. And uh, I'm going to ask you, are we going to do any smoking on the Traeger? Yeah, that's what I'm going to do tonight. I'm going to start them on a Traeger. Um, but this is going to be like a, an Italian-style stroganoff to where I make, you know, I, I like making sauces. I call a lot of sauces gravies. You know, I like when I'm in Italy, I like to really see how gravies and come together and how I, I never eat jarred sauces and i'm not saying that they're bad or anything because i understand you know those guys were just little kitchens at one time too that made their own but i really like to do my own sauces and gravies and this this gravy tonight is not your typical like marinara red sauce gravy but it's over noodles and it's more of a ground stroganoff gravy but it's got wild duck meat in it that that i smoke for a little bit and then put on the traeger and i let it I, i i pretty much just you know, let it pressure cook inside that Traeger before I add it to the, to the gravy and then, then let it finish off in there. And the flavor is awesome. But I think that, you know, that's being creative like that in the grill is a big part of hunting camp. And you've seen it all over the world when I, a lot of these different places that you go to, they use every part of the animal, you know, a lot of you know, Africa and a lot all over the world, they use every part of that animal. It's a big part for those tribes and those locals over there to get that meat and to be able to, right. It's food is a big part of hunting. It, it is. And I'm, I'm excited about the eating and I'm exciting about the hunting in the morning. 
and I, I recognize it's early hours and it might be a little windy or a little cold. Uh, tough work, but somebody's got to do it, and uh, we'd like to volunteer, wouldn't we? <laughs> so I got one question for you. And again, guys, this is John LaMonico. I, it's hard to talk to a guy like John because you don't know where to start and where to finish because he's he's gone through so much in his hunting career and his personal career, his business career. If I were you, I would look him up. John J. LaMonico, L-O-M-O-N-A-C-O, three O's. He's an Italian. He calls himself a Paisan. He's proud of his Italian heritage. He's hunted the world 31 countries. He's had a very blessed life and he built it through work ethic and passion for love family the outdoors um friends and just taking care of people and being transparent and doing what he said he was going to do i can already see that in this man only knowing him a year and at 88 years old he's lived a life that i mean just i'm envious of and that i hope that i you know live i'm i'm half that age right now and i hope that i get another good 40 in me you know that would be awesome But the last question I have for you, John, is at the very beginning of this, and I said I would get back to it, was that ability and that trait to be a sponge and be teachable and coachable. What in the last four days have you learned about me, this crew, the, the, what have you soaked up in this memory? Because I'm not competing with your world travels. I never said that. We're just in Kansas. We're in a little flyover state called Kansas where Dorothy clicked her heels and went to visit the Wizard of Oz. But it's special to me to be here with you. I love Kansas. I love a lot of different duck hunting destinations in our country. But what have you learned in the last, you know, four days since we got here? Well, you know, that's a, a pretty pretty broad spectrum, but uh, what I'm going to really come away with is that uh, I've, I've had a heck of a good time here. Let's put uh, the bag limits, uh, the hunting activity, but I've just had a plain good time. I've seen some wonderful dog work. Wow, we could talk about that for another half hour. Uh, all of the people on... Mitch's staff here at the Hunt Kansas uh, have been very courteous, hardworking, helpful, good people. Boy, I, I would look forward to hunting with them again. It's a pleasant situation. Uh, sitting in the blind with you, we're both looking at a lot of the same things. And, you know, we had some calling experiences today that we'll always remember. We had a flock of skittish mallards come in towards the end of the hunt, I was looking at it. They worked us 10 times, a 360-degree circle. We were primarily set up for geese. We had one mojo, no ground blinds, and they crisscrossed that spread, and they were looking for their pals down there, and they couldn't see them. But your calling was very, very on target, and pretty soon after about really the eighth circle around there at pretty good altitude, they started dropping a little bit. So we got to find these pals of ours down there. They were looking for that hand and they came down and on the very last swing, it looked like they said, well, we've had enough and you hit them pretty hard on the corner. They went downwind one last time and you could just hear them say, we're going to go down there and see for ourselves they dropped in at, you know, right at 35 yards, and we thinned them out pretty good. And that was awesome. It, it wasn't the fact that, you know, uh, everybody got in some good shots and we uh, made our day there, but it was the fact that those birds were gone 
and you pulled that pulled him out of the hat and that's kind of the, the high point of the shooting part but uh, the personal relationships that developed uh, been a lot of fun and I'm looking forward to uh, you guys any of you that are going through Montana on a vacation stop by and visit with me or Doors are open at heart. We're Texas people, so we have Texas hospitality, and we're looking forward to seeing you in Montana. Huh? What was the statement you made? Many are called, but few are chosen. So would we be the chosen ones? Well, that's why I'm talking about it. Huh? Uh, I can't wait, sir, and I appreciate that wholeheartedly. My very, very last question is, and I just real quick, if you had to, if I said, John, you never get to hunt again unless you give me the answer to this question. Ever. You don't get to ever hunt again. you got to name it. Boom. Give me your top three duck hunting destinations in the continental United States. Go. Well, Stuttgart, Platte River, Nebraska, and the, and the third one's a, a tough one. It's really a tough one. Give, give me running room on that. I like places in California and the Butte Sink. You know, I'm from California originally, but... Uh, Stuttgart, Arkansas, the So Platte 88 River. years old, and you hear the duck capital of the world, you're going to go with the one that, I say it too, I just love the culture there. It's duck hunting. Oh, yeah. It's duck hunting at its finest. It's the duck people at its finest. There's e everything that you want in the duck culture is in Arkansas, the Grand Prairie. Yeah, and it, it's a beautiful situation. And again, there the people are very, very nice. And uh, uh, I was very privileged, uh, the owner of the company that I worked for, for 41 years owned the Greenbrier, and I hunted that for 29 years with he, close friends, and our kids. And uh, I watched my boy at seven and a half years old uh, shoot his limit of uh, green heads uh, with a 410 single shot, you know, in the timber. Wow. They, they were right the out Greenbrier there special. at the Greenbrier in, in, special place. in number seven. They call it the 410 hole now, but... Uh, uh, there's a picture of him in there, and then there's a picture of another, uh, the young, youngest son when he was five years old out at the Sabine Ranch, which was another beautiful place where we wintered an astronomical amount of snow geese, uh, cacklers, and a nice assortment of waterfowl. Not heavy on mallards, but mallards, pintails, widgeon, I think the largest concentration of ring-billed ducks, the wintering concentration in America was down there, wow. and, the, and a lot of speckle bellies. So you'll see in some of the books a lot of neck collars. That's when they were banding uh, and neck collaring speckle bellies, and we harvested quite a few of those. The red collars. Yep, red, red and blue. Red and blue. So, so from here, you're going to Nebraska, Scotts Bluff, Platte, Platte River. I'm going to Oklahoma. More duck hunting destinations. I love them all. I love Nebraska. I love the Platte River system. I love the Wyoming-Nebraska border. I love Oklahoma. So, I mean, I'm fired up about it. And I, at seeing you, you're an inspiration at 88 years old. And I know oh. that you're not trying to be, but to live that life and to keep going, not many people do it. They say they want to, but at 88 and you're still rocking it and out there doing what we're doing, I'm, you know, more power to you, Mr. John. I appreciate you being here. 
And I think that we should, you know, try to make more memories tonight, tomorrow, another hunt in the future, take some more pictures. If you do another book, maybe we'll see one of those pictures end up in that book. I do want a copy of the Pintail. I think that we will film us behind podiums one day at a little debate on the Mallard versus the Pintail. I think that would be fun, and I think people would tune in for it. I think that people are interested. Good subject matter. Good subject matter right there. And that's an important part of, uh, you know, keeping that engagement going is good subject matter. But as far as my time here with you, thank you. Tomorrow's going to be a great way to end it. We're going to what they call the surprise pond because you're always surprised on the experience you get. You're like, wow, that really just happened. We're going to go prepare this duck now. There's new episodes of The Foul Life, guys and girls, airing on the Outdoor Channel right now. We're in Argentina this week. Our last episode of Season 10, it's been a blast. We're with Argentina Duck Hunting Adventures, my good friend Monty Baldwin and Franco and Caesar and the entire crew down there at Argentina Duck Hunting Adventures. Check it out. It's a great destination like me and John talked about today. Go down there, experience South America, Argentina specifically. New Foul Life merchandise available at thefowllife.com on our online store right now. We have new merchandise coming for This Life Ain't For Everybody. We truly appreciate the support. A lot of great guests coming up in the near future. We couldn't do it without you guys. Thank you so much for Mr. John lamonico please follow him on instagram just so you can check out this man's story and get his books they are a hunting lifetime and passions continue friends old and new john lamonico l-o-m-o-n-a-c-o he's done it he's been there he's lived it he's a true man he's a family man a hunter and he loves waterfowling so i love being around him tom rashashin do me a favor my man Please play that song by our friend Leith Lofton. What you going to do when the money's all gone? Again, guys and girls, thank you so much for the support. I'm Chad Belding. This has been another episode of This Life Ain't For Everybody. Peace. Say life on earth won't last that long. What you going to do when the money's all gone?